is expecting you. Hello, welcome to Thoughts from Aunt Wu, Mako's Log Book Edition. Today we will be discussing Book One, Episode Four, A Voice in the Night. Joining me today is Corey. Greetings. Corey is back, so I will not be doing this by myself, just kind of ranting for a half hour. Hopefully we will have a bit more of a lively discussion. Also, this time, just through happenstance, Corey and I actually watched the episode together, and we have some reactions to that episode, so I'll potentially be putting that somewhere, so you can check that out over on our YouTube channel, uh, Thoughts from Woo. but this will be our normal episode discussion for A Voice in the Night. So, without further ado, why don't you give us your initial thoughts, Corey? It was good. It was... Well, I was going to say, if I did last episode with you, episode three, like, it started getting into the more average territory of Korra, um, and this episode's no different. The the bad is eh, but the good is phenomenal, not just gr- good, it's, like, phenomenal. Um, there are really high points of the episode, and, you know, some low points, nothing that really completely took me out of the episode. Um, Amans continues to be one of my favorite avatar villains throughout both shows um i i think he's number two but again i i don't remember book or season one of Korra, so i i know you were saying to me that his resolve kind of wavers when you like get the full motivation behind him so if that's true maybe it won't keep up but right as of right now like the way i view him right now i love him like absolutely love him and he's intimidating. I love how vulnerable Cora was this episode, and it really has a it, sh- it starts a pattern with her. And I I, I think having really Cora really is like anti Aang in every single way. Aang really never was vulnerable, and like the times he was, it's because he either was procrastinating or thought he was gonna kill someone, um, or when uh, 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 Appa was lost. But here, Cora. Or the storm, yeah. But here, Korra is vulnerable just a lot, and she's easily rattled, and she has a, a false bravado, and I, I think that's a really good way to go with her. Um, and this episode really uh, started, you know, pretty average, but then ended really strong. Yeah, so, you know, we really talked about the first three episodes are kind of introductory episodes, where episode one is the introduction to Corey as a character in the series as a whole episode two is the introduction to pro bending and episode three was the introduction to the equalists here is kind of the first what i would really consider plot centric meat of the season and something i said in the very end of the last episode was there's only 13 episodes in book one yeah core seasons are shorter so we're getting much closer to what you would consider the middle of the book you know pretty fast so as a result, things really do ramp up much, much quicker than, say, they did back in back in book one. I mean, if you remember, episode four, we're still just kind of doing random things around the Earth Kingdom. Uh, you know, episode four is, what, King of Omashu? So, or no, is it, or is it Kiyoshi? It's one of the two. But, like, it, you know, it's still kind of the pretty episodic-y, just kind of doing random stuff. Here, we're, like, very quickly into the into the heart of what's going to happen with this with conflict with Equus. Um, you know, I I agree with Corey that this episode was another standout episode for Amon and for early Amon. And, you know, I, I spent a lot of time ranting last week about how much I, I wish that um, they had committed to what Amon 
it really was. And I'm not going to do that again. You know, I covered that quite a bit. And I'm not going to, you know, continue to do that over and over again. But just know that all of my thoughts from last week apply. I really wish that Amon was continue to be as standout as he is in these, you know, in these couple of episodes here. But with that said, there's there's a lot to to love in this episode. Um, I agree with Corey completely that the uh, showing uh, Cora's emotional state um, very profoundly and, and her having just an emotional breakdown at the end of this um, is really great. And and you know what? I, good on them for making your main character vulnerable, which is kind of a dangerous thing to do sometimes. But they really. Um, they really make it work, and I, I think you know this continues just the trend of how much I think Cora, how much I love Cora, and you know I, I really would not have thought I said this, you know, considering how much I didn't like Cora back in back in the day. But early Cora is just better than early Ang, and late Cora is definitely better than late Ang. So I, I think that you know we're really seeing it just pretty unequivocally that Cora is is just a stronger character. Um, than her past life. And that's not to say that I don't like Aang, although, you know, there were issues there for sure. It's just Korra is really, really great. Um, the other big thing that we obviously have to mention with this episode is we have an introduction to two characters. Um, the first, a major character for this book in Tarlock, who's, who's going to kind of be one of the sort of secondary antagonists to Amon. Um, and then, of course, Asami, one of the main characters of this entire series, um, and we're going to talk about her quite a bit, um, but you know, just really happy that that Asami is here. I, you know, was kind of missed Asami in the first three episodes, uh, so really, really happy that she is has joined us. Um, so with that said, you know, we're you know we get right in here, and kind of the opening shot right away is you know Cora having this this nightmare of uh, of seeing what's what's happening, and. You know, it harkens back to, you know, Aang, Aang has certainly had his share of nightmares over the years. And, um, you know, this this definitely seems like kind of a, you know, a bit of an avatar thing, you know, with them having such a strong spiritual connection. They're, they're going to be, um, you know, I, I think that uh, they're going to have a little bit more common of this as well as the pressure of, um, of feeling things throughout the world. But it just a really it's a it's a nice little sequence here, and also you know it's it's really well animated and, and just looks great. Yeah, they, 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 I was gonna mention this from last episode too. The the animation is so good, and I throughout the episode, like obvious, and this this makes perfect sense. It's not the, it's not the hark on the last Airbender, but the last Airbender is an introduction to bending. So bending is very simple, like you know an Earthbender throws rocks and water. Like with water, you know, you throw it, you freeze it, and fire bending is very simple, and air bending is is very simple. They they make the most out of bending in Korra. Like I've I've noticed, they they make very unique ways of fighting and ways of using each element. Each element is looks powerful and on equal footing with each other, and and the animation just it, it, they kind of animate in almost like a 3D setting where they have like a roaming camera that goes up down 3D and all over the fight and it just comes Well they across. straight up do. They 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 use a 3D camera. In yeah, and, and and it's a singular shot. There's no camera cuts. It's and it's easy to follow the action. You're never confused as to what's happening. It's 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 one of the strongest parts of Korra. Bar and one of the few elements and along with the music that is that surpasses Last Airbender my opinion i think between animation and music um you i think cora beats out last airbender i, I don't know 
know if I would say beats out. I mean, I think that, you know, Cora is a few years in the, you know, in the future. And, you know, you're right that they're not having to teach us what bending is here. They're, they're, they have the luxury of they had an art style already figured out and now they're just iterating on it. But with that said, yeah, this it looks really, really good. Um, and just a lot of great use and, and just as you said like the cinematography here is really really good there's just some really great shots and you know throughout Korra in general there's there are some really incredible use of you know use of, of cam of really just camera moves which again is weird to say in animation but there's just no other way to say it that's what it is um, that, that that works really well and it just enhances this and I think that you know Avatar is praised so much for how much it, how great it looks and look Avatar still looks amazing you, you can go back and watch that and there are some incredibly beautiful sequences but um, you know Korra definitely deserves to be in that same praise and because it is a little bit newer it's going to look a little bit better and that's you know we, this is another great great example of that right here um, we move in we have our council meeting um First and foremost, something you know, both of us work uh, work in politics, so we're uh, a little a uh, little keen eye on some of the little things here. I find it really interesting that the water each water tribe gets its own representative, while the Fire Nation and the Earth Kingdom each get one, as well as Tenzin, who represents himself and his children. It's kind of an interest. You know, talk about a weird political dynamic and how much like theoretically more power these two small water tribes have. Yeah, I. I literally don't understand that especially considering the water tribes yes they're different the northern and southern water tribe but i i think they still have pretty like you know equal i guess like things that they would want like they're i think like the water tribe zeitgeist is pretty similar um so yeah I, i'm surprised i was able to, <laughs> to make it through and, and there's no executive there's no checks on them so it is very interesting how that works out i wonder if there's any I issues I mean, we see there clearly are issues with this, and you know, and what's the... and what's and what's weird is like by diameter and even by culture, the Earth Kingdom is way more, I guess, splintered. And I think the Earth Kingdom should theoretically have the most representatives, but I guess they, I guess not. Yeah, I mean, I I think that it's there's definitely problems with this, but I think that it's clear from the fact that the city is facing a, you know essential economic uprising it's not overly surprising and like i think that that's the point i mean you can also kind of understand that like where this council came from was like ang an airbender zuko Sokka, and you know i guess toff in theory was probably more the police chief but like you can kind of understand that this probably came out of they Ang and Zuko are setting up Republic City and have just kind of built a council with their friends, and then it eventually, seventy years later, has tried to had to morph into something new. And I think that that's you know in in many ways, um, they're like it, it causes these um, like it it might have made sense back a little bit back in the day, but if you don't have long term thinking, it causes problems. And well, here are the problems. Um, also, you know, we get a little bit of, you know, I, I, I hesitate, I don't know if I want to, how much I want to call this foreshadowing, but I guess looking back, you kind of have to mention it a little bit, um, with kind of, you know, Tarlock bringing up, um, Yacon, which, you know, okay, that is, that is the entirety of this book, uh, you know, spoilers for book one, but Amon is Yacon's son, so I guess in theory, it's kind of foreshadowing. 
Yeah, yeah. So, Yakon, which one's Yakon again? Yakon was the guy that Tarlock mentioned in the um in the episode. Uh Yakon was the bloodbender. Um, oh, okay. That that did that. Um I don't know. I obviously I don't like the fact that this is true, so I don't really care that much. I guess we can kind of call it foreshadowing, but whatever. Um Something that you know you were sort of harping on a little bit while we were we were watching the episode, um, just the just really continuing to sell the 1920s aesthetic of the music that's playing while um, the uh, while while Cora is listening uh, listening to the radio before Amon's speech comes on. It just it sounds really good. I really do like it. Yeah, everything is sold really well in terms of the 20s aesthetic from the the clothing options like even in episode three when Korra was arm in arm um going to Amon's like I I guess whatever is an underground thing like her clothing options at the council meeting or at the at the gala I I loved all the clothing options I love the uh the costume design of this show like so much and uh, obviously as you mentioned the music on the radio is is perfect i like how while cora is just casually training she's listening to it it, it really works mm-hmm. and then aman comes on comes on the radio and you know aman is really good at spectacle Raman is really good at selling to followers and selling to selling to a city um what he's doing um, you know, at the end of the day, a revolution requires public performance, and uh, Aman is good at it. Like he he gives this speech, and it, it sort of has that equal combination of confidence. It's just scary enough that you can tell he's real, while also being kind of inspiring to people who are susceptible to to his rhetoric. And it just it's really good. And I, it's like this season. For this book would definitely not work at all if Amon was boring, and well, Amon ain't boring. Yeah, I mean, as a, again, I don't really remember how this this season pans out, but as of right now, like if he theoretically stayed at this and like whatever his motivation fell in line with at least what I think it should be, like he's phenomenal and and he's scary, and even towards the end of the episode, I know it's jumping, but like how he knows, like. You know, I'm not going to take your power away. I'll turn you into a martyr. So he, like, is, is calculating, and he isn't just straight up, like, evil for the sake of being evil. It's just, it's so enjoyable right now where he is right now. Mm-hmm. We will, we will talk about that when we, when we get to that scene, because I do have some thoughts there. Um, with that said, let's welcome in Asami Sato running Mako over on her moped. Spoiler alert, I adore Asami. She is awesome. And quite frankly, she is awesome right from the start. Um, you know, they really do a great job of she is incredibly glamorous, and you can tell like how like Mako sees and it's like, oh my god, who is this woman? Um and she just she carries herself with a with just such an air of uh, you know it, it works, it fits who she is, where you know she's not like completely stuck up and, and a bad person but you can tell that like this is someone very well versed in high society um and and i really and i you know for an introduction i i think it's great and you know to think of how you know to get an introduction of you ran some guy over on your moped i i like it yeah i honestly 
I again, I don't remember her. I mean, I do remember her obviously, but I don't remember like falling in love with her. I think she's a really good character, and I know you mentioned to me when I was watching the episode that I'm not sure if this is true or if the writers admitted it, but you said she was supposedly originally supposed to be a double agent. And... Yeah, so we can we can talk about that because I, I do want to bring this up, and, and it's going to become a very it's going to become very important once we get into some stuff with her and Cora that was not really in this episode at all. But initially, the plan for Asami, at least. I've seen, and I'm pretty sure that the, the creators are on record saying this, Asami was going to be a sleeper agent for the Equalists. Obviously, her father is a actual uh, agent of the, of the Equalists. And initially, the idea was is that Asami was sent in to do this. And one of the, um, like, she was literally told to, like, befriend and date Korra's pro-bending teammate Mako as a way to get close to them and learn secrets. They eventually dropped this, and I just want to be clear, I'm very happy that they dropped this. I think Asami's character is way better, you know, leaving that thing out of it. But it does, I think, show up a little bit here because right away, like, it's a little odd that, like, Asami just happens to run Mako over with, you know, with her, with her moped and, like, immediately is, like, all right, I'm going to date Mako. Um, And then later on with Korra, like, there's, like, some stuff where she's very clearly, like, making a pretty obvious effort to get to know Korra. Now, I am eventually going to attribute that to some other things, but at least you can see the, um, the fingerprints of this initial start here. And I think it does help to explain sort of, I'd say, her first, like, two or three episodes and, like, how some of the con- some of her stuff that is maybe a little bit convenient initially was designed to be not convenient but deliberate. Yeah, I, I she feel it feels very rushed <laughs> their relationship and like it seems like you know she's like feigning interest when they're at the dinner together and like at the end when she's over his arm I was like I like really it was like the next scene after that little dinner date they had and I'm like that's it? <laughs> like they're dating I, mean, like, I want to be clear that we're not we are not a hundred percent sure how much time is passing in this in this period. Like you would assume that Tarlock did not assemble the task force, get Korra there in a day. Like there's probably a fair amount of time that's Yeah, moving. but as as the viewer, you, I want to see more of their chemistry I, if we, they are to well, date. <laughs> I would argue that maybe they don't have that much chemistry for some reasons. And, like, I, I kind of, like, I said this a little bit last week. I see you weren't, weren't here. But, like, I've always hated the melodrama of book one. I've always, and especially book two, God's sake. The, the, the love triangle of Asami, Mako, and Korra is just, it's frustrating. It's annoying. I'm starting to appreciate it a little bit more knowing that Mako was not destined to be with either of these people, and that Mako is canonically awful at relationships. Like, this becomes a major plot point that Mako is bad at this stuff, and I'm starting to excuse what I initially attributed to bad writing in terms of the melodrama to deliberate writing such that Mako is just really bad with with women that he likes, and Asami and Korra are not exactly totally sure of themselves as to what they 
Like they haven't fully internalized what they're looking for in their own relationships. And therefore, it actually is totally understandable that it's like as bad as it is. Right, right. I mean, I I just, I don't see it at all. And I, I guess it's because Mako, as you're probably right, is just so unlikable to me. And... Well, like, but here's the thing. I, I agree that I don't, I don't see it at all. But I've gone from that was a problem because I don't see it all to, oh, no, that's the point. You're not supposed to see it. They're bad for each other. Um, speaking of Mako, I guess we can talk a little bit about Bolin. Bolin does not get very much to do in this episode, but he does go and uh, thank Korra for, for saving him from from the Equalists. And, I, you know, I, I think that I'm a little higher on early Bolin than you are. I don't like where Bolin goes throughout the rest of the show, but I really did like book one Bolin. I liked puppy dog Bolin. I liked just like Bolin's a good guy and a really nice person. And I know like he's not Sokka and yeah, he tries to be Sokka a little too much, but there was a character in there and I'm, I'm sad that as the show goes on, they lose some of the just like, genuinely nice Bolin and move towards like this kind of shitty guy for lack of a better term. Yeah. I don't remember what I honestly don't remember what Bolin turns into, but like, I'm not like offended by him at all. Like, especially in book one, like, as you said, he's like a puppy dog and I just view him more as like a Sokka light. And I, I know you said there is differences. Like Sokka was, you know, very sexist and had some character flaws while as of right now Bolin really doesn't outside that he's kind of like you know willful like ignorant a little bit but you know he he's this episode he's fine I I I do appreciate he's right now the most likable character maybe outside of Tenzin for me (laughs) so yeah it just it's a it's it's sort of it's a shame and it just like I feel like while I while the the show inevitably gets better as Bolin takes a back seat I really do wish that, like, this was the Bolin and they didn't move towards this sort of uh, what he becomes into book three and, and four um, in general. Um, you know, I, I think that, you know, one of the big advantages that Korra has and one of the big advantages we have here at Thoughts From Wu, getting to sort of see, taking this holistic view of everything is seeing, you know, Korra struggling with her fears and, 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 and needs of, of, of um, her duties to the Avatar. It's really, you get to, like, really see this. And this is, you know, probably one of the best examples of, like, how much I've changed on book one um, since my initial viewing. You know, the first time I saw all this, I really, like, the fact that Korra was just, like, clearly terrified but not willing to open up to any you know, to anyone around her but was also at the same time so brash and and, and and had this like cocky attitude for no reason like i really like at first didn't get it it was sort of like okay yeah she's afraid okay but she's doing this like i didn't really get it but now i really like truly understand just how much cora the heart of her character is she wants to be in it she wants to be shaping world events she wants to be the as much the avatar as possible 
Which, one, makes sense, kind of being the Avatar coming off of Aang, who ended the Hundred Years' War and had sort of a pretty massive, um, you know, shape, really shaped the world in a pretty massive way. And, you know, something that, that, that Kiyoshi has provided quite a bit more context to is sort of seeing Kiyoshi, who sort of comes from the opposite situation, where she's coming off of Korok, an Avatar who, unfortunately, for, you know, various reasons, had, you know, didn't have as big of an impact on the world and how that shaped her view and sort of you can tell that like Korra feels such a burden living up to Aang's legacy and she desperately wants to be in the game she desperately wants to be on Tarlik's task force and doing this but she's also terrified and doesn't know what to do and the interplay of those two things and how much you know clear pain and vulnerability it causes within Korra is once again that that's the heart of her character and I really like it and I I think that it's really really well done and you know I said it in the intro but like I think it's just better done than anything with Aang like Aang, the heart of Aang's character is he didn't want to be the avatar and it comes up it's it's here it's 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 in the background a lot but like I never got the the sense that it was like as strong and as in you know sort of real as it is with Korra here where this is just this is who she is yeah and I, I think I think kind of a reason why she originally didn't want to jump onto the task force is because she's just so afraid of him and then she kind of got goaded into it and you know had to put up a, a get that false confident bravado uh with the media and then, you know, she faced the consequences of it, and then she broke down at the end. So I think that really played a good narrative over the episode with her. Yeah, um, and that kind of brings us right um, to something. Just, I will quickly mention, Asami and Korra, they meet. Very nice. It's only one interaction. We'll, uh, we'll talk more about them next week. Um, but as you mentioned with the media, and I think this is going to bring us to uh, Mark's big uh, explanation of why people don't like the show for this week and this goes back to the time skip and how we're now sort of 70 years in the future and you know the world is quote-unquote so different and i think that this scene with cora in front of the media being sort of bombarded by news reporters who are clearly there for because of tarlock is really really important to understanding where the show has gone now because Okay, you're going to jump ahead 70 years. You're going to add some new technology. But at the end of the day, Avatar is still Avatar. The story is still about a single person who is the embodiment of keeping balance in the world. People still have the magical powers to move the elements. You're going to have to do something to like sell us on why did we jump ahead in time? Because that's, you know, while even though I'm totally in the belief of it makes total sense, the time jump is actually totally reasonable with where technology was within the last airbender. If you're going to jump ahead in time, you have to tell stories with that. And here is the first real great example of telling a story that only makes sense in a more modern age, granted the 20s. There was no media in Aang's day. Aang wasn't giving press conferences. This is something that he never had to worry about. Korra now is new to the city, has no idea what she's doing, and is suddenly being asked questions in front of reporters where she is completely out of her element. And 
There's no avatar media training. Like that hasn't happened. You figure that's probably going to start happening now. But for Cora to have to to deal with her own public image and and being sort of in people's lives more uh, uh, more in the moment is a very big deal. And I'm really glad that that this series is willing to sort of bring us into what would be a more modern problem for Cora to have to deal with on top of just the standard there is an evil guy that she has to stop. Yeah, I I, I think, though, whether, you know, media and, and this type of stuff existed for hundreds of years or now, I think the same thing would have happened to Cora anyway, just because it's Cora, right? I think she still would have gotten goaded into it by the media. I, mean, I, I think so, but this is, like, this is a new thing. Like, Aang never had to deal with this. Yes, there. I'm, you know, I'm sure there was some media somewhere, but not on a global scale. Not radio, where there's instant, you know, where people can instantly have access to this kind of information. I mean, well, obviously, you, you, it's not the internet, but like that's a big. The, the world of of politics, for instance, is fundamentally different once more mass forms of communication come in, and I think that that's like. I, look, I agree with you. At the end of the day, Cora would have always eventually ended up in all of this. But I think her neat, like sort of desire to maintain a public image that's not a coward is a big part of it. Well, you know what's funny? I, I, I'm trying to ask myself what would Aang do in this exact circumstance? I think Aang would have immediately joined the task force. Immediately. And it's funny. Like I, I don't think Aang would have gotten scared of of uh of Amans. I think he would have, you know, tried to taunt him, try his best to, to break out of it. So it's it's just funny to see I don't know if I don't know if you're right though that he would join the task force, considering like his entire philosophy is quick and clever, not bust in bending arms blazing. But I think he would have it in his head that he needs to stop this like this group that can take away bending i disagree i think um, i think ang would have like been like i'm gonna talk to him on and tell him that benders are good i i think he would have gotten pure like diplomatic solution for lack of i'm not saying he would have joined the task force to to beat him up i think he would have done it to find him or use resources to find them and then when it comes like push comes to shove he's like all right let's do this diplomatically yeah, I don't know. It's hard, it's hard to say just because Aang has never – Aang was, never went through anything quite like this. Yeah, but I think he like – every example of Aang is facing it head on and he never really like Facing down. it head on? What are you yeah, – Well, I'm sorry. I know, I, know what, I know what you're talking about. The, what, the, everything that's not his main goal, Mark. <laughs> I don't agree with that at all. I, I think like – again, like you don't have a great example of this, but like – Aang didn't exactly go directly at the Dai Li. Aang didn't, like... I'm trying to think of, of some examples. I mean, I, I think Aang... Again, it's hard to imagine Aang being in this in this circumstance, but I, I don't think Aang is, hey, Tarlock, I'm joining your task force. I think Aang is like, I'm asking Amon to meet with me so we can discuss ways to make the city better for non-vendors. Yeah, I suppose. I, I mean, I just every time it comes to helping people, Aang usually does it. Like, and yeah, I but think... 
helping whom? Is he helping Tarla? I think Aang would say it's my job to help everybody. Right, and someone, an organization that's going to try to take bending powers away against their will, I think that's right up his alley. Yeah, but I think Aang would be way more sympathetic to the equalist message than Korra was. Yes, 100%. And I'm not saying, again, I'm not saying he's joining, I think if actually, if anything, now that I think about it, he would try to convince the task force that using like brute force to take them down is right. You'd be like, listen, you know, he has some points. We should listen to him out and, and really try to. So I, I think maybe if anything, he'll try to convince the politicians like, hey, let's meet. Let's find him. Talk to him and, and see what happens. Yeah. But it's all it's 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 weird, though, because, again, like he built this city. So it's hard to like, I don't know. It, it just it, it. Yeah, I know. We're never going to know an answer. But yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, Hey, we talked about it all the time in The Last Airbender. Facial expressions. Uh, the look that Cora has right before she goes to, to break into that equalist camp. Oh, my God. Like, it's just, it, this show continues to sell emotions so well. Yep. No, absolutely. And then it led, I was, when I was doing this live with you, when she gets captured, it was like the highlight of the entire episode. Well, we, haven't, but, we haven't quite gotten oh. there yet. Oh, I, I guess um, it was a jump out. We have the initial raid. I just want to say, just a couple of things I want to say. Um, I love the music right before they're about to, to go for that raid. It, you know, it just again, like you were talking about how great the music is. The music really is phenomenal in this, in this book. Yeah. And again, jump back to episode three, uh, the music kind of carried over to episode four, but the entire rescue operation scene where he like is first fighting and taking away the bending and then they they get the steam out that music was so good and like like hooked the music alone just hooked you to the scene it just sells you on the atmosphere so well um yeah so Korra once again now kind of I wouldn't say completely goaded but essentially goaded by the press challenges Amon to a duel um and heads off to, to Air Temple Island and you know, you want to talk about being in the shadow of Aang. I mean, try being in front of a, you know, 70-foot statue of the guy. Um, and just the, the look of this whole thing, you know, the look of Aang's statue is really amazing. Getting to see the lights of Republic City and the skyline is, you know, truly great. Um, you know, once again, like, you want to, we're talking about, like, m- this moving forward in time. And, like, this is, like, the, these are shots we've never really seen anything like. And I and I really do do love it. Um, and then yeah, the the equalists in Amon show up and and a really like terrifying scene. You know, it's dark. You know, Korra. The only light really comes from Korra's firebending. You don't really know what's happening. You see, and then Amon just kind of walks up, and you're like, oh my god. So I want to ask you about this because you know you've been kind of raving about Amon, and you mentioned a little bit earlier. They go with an explanation for why the villain does not do the simplest thing and make Korra into a non-threat anymore. Does that work for you? Yes, I completely agree that if he took away her bending and then sent her, I guess, back, or I don't know, whatever, you want to say kill her, took away the bending, whatever, it would have made her into a martyr, and it would have energized the Avatar is the most important bender in the world and is a symbol and if again not knowing the rest how the rest of the season pans out um like 
it's not it would it would hurt his cause more than help it because it would unify benders if the 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 avatar lost the bending ability before it was time for that to happen i mean i think it's a little cliche what he says is like i'll first take away everyone's bending and you'll be the last one but like i i think the message is still there and i i agree with him that if he did it there and just sent her back into the world it it, it could have hurt their cause more than helped it yeah i in the end i i do come down on the on the same side as that i i think that it does end up working um but i did want to mention it a little bit because it is like sort of the classic trope of you know and you know i could kill you but instead but but well not just that look at episode three like he lets everyone fight him before he could just he could just keep them bound and, and tied up and just take away their bending but he makes a spectacle out of it to help his messaging well the difference is that is actually public where he's actually like putting on a public performance exactly and and with Korra that was not public so it goes yeah. against what no, he I, I agree I, I think that in the end like he definitely has thought this through and I think I think that it does work but I did want to mention it because I know that like it definitely was in the back of my head for a second that was like come on come on dude you you, you could just make this simple on yourself um, and then finally, you know, Tenzin finds Korra and she admits that she is afraid and, you know, it's, it's really good. It's really emotional. Uh, you know, shout out to Jeanette Varney for a really great vocal performance from, from Korra there. And it's, you know, again, it's, it's really, really good. And I, and I think, you know, I've, I've said before, I, I think that they do such a great job of, of delving into, to Korra's emotional state and like to consider we're four episodes in and like how much of Korra's character has come through. And you compare that to, you know, to Aang, where, like, yes, you have the emotional moment of him in the Southern Air Temple with realizing his the airbenders are gone. But, like, you know, that was kind of all it was. And for this one to, like, really go in on Korra here, it's, you know, it's great. And I'm I'm really happy that they were willing to make her so emotionally vulnerable. Um, and I, I just, I think it 100% works. And te- 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 when te- again, when Tenzin is on... Tenzin is on and I thought Tenzin was great and I obviously Tenzin they could have went the route of him just being pissed at her for you know doing something so reckless to challenge him and that but he was such Tenzin was in form Korra was in great form today um and like I I would say this is one of the most for right now again it could change later on in Korra I don't remember a lot of the rest of Korra but right now it's one of the most powerful just like breakdown scenes in avatar like obviously i think back to like last airbender where katara just broke down after she blood bended which was really good and there's some other good scenes but this is up there with those like in terms of power yeah you know well i mean cora has many great emotional moments so i i don't think this is you know this is alone but you know for kind of the first big one for her it i think this works completely and you know i it, it does so not only does it sell Korra's character but it also sells us on like the equalists are a big deal and this is something that we should be if you know Korra's afraid of it we should be afraid of it and I, I really don't again I really don't have that many I have nothing bad to say about this this is really really good and and you know early Korra for something that like took me so long to get through I I love this stuff yep the right now as of right now as of, as of episode four the entire premise I'm sold on between where they are in the timeline, the equalists right now are perfect. 
as of right now, again, I'm not going farther into the future because I, I know things change, but right now the Equalist are 10 out of 10 for me. The setting, the music, the emotional weight. Um, and the only thing that's really suffering right now, and I'll mention this in the fine final thoughts, I, you know, I, I really don't like uh, the uh, Asami relationship. Um, and I, I don't, obviously, I don't like the kids. And really outside of, I mean, the characters... You, you, you just need to get over your hatred of the kids. Like, no, but like... Children. Yeah, but they're they're comic relief children. And like, Gerard, what's the girl's name? The the one that actually becomes a big deal, the older one? Janora. Janora, like, is an example of like, especially later on in Korra, of like, one of Aang's grandchildren done right. And I'm not saying everyone needs to be like that, but I'm saying the kids are strictly there for comic relief, but the lowest brow of comic relief, like... Like there's I, a poop, there's a poop joke I, in the episode. <laughs> I don't entirely disagree. I did not like that joke at all. Um, and you're not entirely wrong. It's just I just tend to ignore them, and I don't think it really do- damages the episode. But but, but 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 Janora is an example of why I think it does sometimes because I think it's a big deal to be Aang's grandchildren and Tenzin's children, and I I would think someone in such a strict I know they're ten, but like I would I would think in a, such a strict airbending household where there's... Can I ask you a question? Yeah. What was Aang's first line in the series? Do you want to go something sledding? Penguin sledding? Penguin sledding. I think you are maybe uh, forgetting exactly what uh, your average airbender is like. I I think think him saying penguin sledding was... A deeper way of him hiding his turmoil because he just went through a traumatic experience. <laughs> I do not agree with that. Well, no, I, I think I think not. I think in the pilot episode, it was a way to set the tone for who. I Aang think is. Aang. I think this is what you would expect from young Airbender children. I'm not surprised by this at all. We'll talk about the kids when they begin to have right. a greater well, role. Whatever. Um, yeah. I just. It's just you. You get I, for me. In order for it not to hurt the episode, you get one comic relief with the kids in episode. You just do it once, get it out of their system. All right, there were three, so fine. Whatever. All right, go ahead. Um, so I guess that'll transition into into final thoughts and ratings. So why don't you go ahead? Um, so yeah, very good episode. I was when I watched episode three first. I was gonna say this. Um, I'll actually give my rating for episode three while I'm at it. So you, because I know you're keeping record of it, but like it's starting to feel a lot more average and i'm not saying it in a negative way i'm saying now you're getting the more i think episodes one and two were like wow great job guys and i was giving it high not i was giving it like not eights and nines and now you're starting to get to the more of what i remember cora being there's the good there's the bad it's a mixed bag and it's more settled now like in episode three the beginning of the episode i again i forgot everything so i was like uh oh oh i'm starting to lose it now i'm starting to get back to what i remember it being and then it ended extremely strong like the ending of season episode 3 bumped it up to where if i if you were asking me the first half of episode 3 was a 5 but then when you average in what happened at the end of the episode where it was so intense and i was hooked to the screen and the music and the the visuals and the steam and the choreography and everything and even just the mons being great it ju- bumped the episode up to a seven and i'm like wow all right that's, a, that's really good it was above average for me and the ending came out strong this episode was similar it was a, it was a mixed bag episode for me that ended phenomenally like and right now the equalists are so intimidating as you mentioned it cora 
being terrified of them makes you as the viewer terrified of them. And they right now they're conceived as really a huge threat. And like right now, right now, the Equalists are like the most compelling villain in Avatar, maybe outside of Azula. And um, I really enjoyed uh, uh, Korra breaking down at the end of the episode. And I'm going to actually give this one a, a 7.5. Okay. Um, yeah, I, I'd say I'm not particularly far off um, from that. Um, and, you know, I, I had a pretty similar rating uh, to that last last week as well. I really like this episode. I think that there's there's a lot to like. Um, you know, I think I'm just going to have to give kind of a standard, like, one-point deduction every one of these Equalist-based episodes because, unfortunately, all of the stuff that I love about Amon in these episodes turns out not to be true. But at the end of the day, this is a really, really riveting episode and really great. I, I, I really like pretty much everything in it. I, the, the Milo joke is pretty annoying and I don't like it. And look, I've come around on the Asami and Mako stuff. I don't like their relationship, but I now accept that I'm not supposed to like their relationship. So I, I really don't have that much bad to say other than my sort of standard disclaimer about the Equalists and Amon. So... I'm going to give this a straight 8 out of 10. I think this is a really good episode. And, you know, really, you know, looking at these episode rankings, Korra starts out really, really strong. So, you know, here's hoping they could have continued it. I don't know if they quite do, but there's been some really great stuff here. So with that, thank you guys for, for tuning in. And thank you, Corey, uh, for being here. Uh, we will be back next week with episode 5. Um, what is episode 5's name? Episode 5 is The Spirit of Competition, which is kind of a more pro-bending focused episode. So look forward to that. And we will be steaming on through right into kind of the middle and meat of book one. So really great stuff, guys. So thanks again, and we'll see you soon.